Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Scott Galloway, the author of The Four, New York University uh, professor, and an authority on, on the winner-take-all of the digital economy. Scott, 25 years ago, where... The internet promised the democratization of business and culture. What's gone wrong? Uh, wow, we're going to need a longer show. Um, so, <laughs> Easy question I, to begin, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I think, look, I think that these are for-profit entities and what they have kind of stumbled onto, I would say, and there's a variety of things, but if you were to try and reverse engineer to one thing that's done a ton of damage is that their underlying business models tap into a very tribal instinct, and that is we're very drawn to conflict and rage. And the underlying business model of Google and Facebook is to sell as much advertising as possible. So as a result, the algorithm has a vested interest in creating conflict and rage. So they talk about engagement as a key metric, and what they really refer to is enragement. So if someone posts a message talking about the science around the prosperity and the utility of vaccines, it doesn't get much attention. But if uh, if someone posts uh, something on the anti-vax movement and inspires a huge argument online, that's more Nissan ads. So there's an underlying motivation to kind of tear at the fabric and separate us and create conflict uh, such that you end up with organizations that are very remiss to remove hate content and kind of set up, if you will, a town square where people are shoved uh, you know, against each other and promoted to fight with one another. So we have a business model that, quite frankly, is just meant to agitate and tear at the fabric of society. But why has this resulted in the monopolization of the economy? R rather than the four, why haven't we got the 4,000 uh, all businesses concentrating on encouraging hate and discord? Well, it's a variety of things. These, these companies have sort of made the jump to light speed, and that is their businesses benefit from network effects, and that is they get younger. Most, most, most products produced by the economic titans of yesterday, whether it was P&G or General Motors, the products began to age or lose value when you twisted a cap off toothpaste or a car rolled off the assembly line, whereas these companies, Google, every time you search on Google, you make the product younger or better for the next person who searches. So once they hit a critical mass, whether it's Google with 2 billion users or Facebook with 2.7 or Facebook Inc. with 2.7 billion, 
they sort of pull away from the pack. And just from a product standpoint, a network effect becomes somewhat unassailable. In addition, the profits they garner and their ability to reinvest, their predatory business practices where they either put a company out of business if they can't do that or they acquire it, has resulted in an aggregation of power to one or two firms in the fastest growing sectors in our economy. We've been here before. What's different about this time is it seems as if, at least in the U.S., we've lost the script and forgotten our proud legacy of antitrust that when any one firm becomes an invasive species and performs infanticide on small promising companies or prematurely euthanizes big companies, which tend to be good employers and good taxpayers, typically the government has historically stepped in. And for some reason here, we seem to have lost the script and these companies kind of run unfettered and only increase their monopoly power. Do the Americans then need to take a lead from the Europeans and focus on antitrust and aggressively fight the power and influence of these companies? I think so. I think that what you're seeing from Europe is that they register all of the downsides of big, big tech, the job destruction, the tax avoidance, the weaponizations, the weaponization of these platforms to pervert our elections. But they receive a fraction of the upside. In the US, they inspire a lot of innovation, a lot of revenue, a lot of jobs. And in Europe, there are very few hospital wings or universities named after Google or Facebook billionaires. So while you capture all of the downside of big tech, you capture a fraction of the upside, which is stiff in the backbone of EU regulators, specifically Marguerite Vestier. And we're seeing not antitrust as much because it's difficult to break up a company that's headquartered in another country, but we've seen more regulation and what I would call more sort of sober, a more sober discussion around the downside of big tech in Europe. What specifically would you like to see happen in the U.S. when it comes to um, controlling, harnessing the power of these huge tech companies? So I, I think we have a tendency in the U.S. to either see things as good or bad. And if we see it as good, we leave it alone. And I think pesticides are probably a net good for society, but we have a food and drug administration. I think fossil fuels are still a net good for society, but we have emission standards and we're investing aggressively in alternative forms of energy. I think big tech on the whole is a net good for society, but it's the word net that has, that's the problem. And I think that these companies would be better for their shareholders, broader tax base, more hiring, and more competitive. I think competition is the answer. And I think antitrust, I think breaking Google up into several companies as well as Facebook would create entities that have to offer their customers, which are their advertisers, stronger value proposition. So it would have to say to an advertiser, we're going to make the requisite investments to ensure this platform is never weaponized by the foreign intelligence arm of the Russian government, or that YouTube, a competitor to YouTube might decide to create a genuinely safe place for kids on their platform. Right now, there's very little incentive for them to do anything that gets in the way of their supernova business model or profitability. So it's a lot of faux concern. It's a lot of promises to do better. It's incredibly deft delay and obfuscation, but monopoly behavior is a function of they don't really need to do anything. So in sum, I think a really good start would be to break these companies up. If they were broken up, where are they most vulnerable? Is it on the business model front? You brought up the business model earlier saying that by definition, the business model was lending itself to discord and hatred in society. Are there other business models that uh, in a different business environment could challenge these companies? So it might be a solution. Some people have offered the idea that if Facebook just charged a subscription fee um, and you got 20% pickup, it could have a 
you know, a, a viable business model. I don't think that's the way to go. I think it's difficult to replicate their business model. What I do think you could do, though, I think breaking them up would actually result in stronger companies. AT&T was considered an innovator in the 70s and 80s. You could call from New Jersey to California for you know 20 or 30 cents a minute, which seemed like a great deal at the time. And what we found when we broke them up into, I believe it was seven or nine baby bells, was that a lot of technology was lying dormant in their R&D lab, Bell Labs, and we ended up with unleashing a torrent of innovation, whether it was cell or fiber or data and analytics. So we don't know what we're missing in the sense that I believe that if you broke these companies up, you'd end up with companies that in aggregate are actually worth more. I think it would benefit shareholders. Competition would be a wonderful thing to introduce into this ecosystem per our previous comments. Broader tax base, more hiring, more M&A. In some, the only the only stakeholder that loses in a breakup is the current CEOs because they're no longer reigning over as large a kingdom. They're now king of Canada instead of king of all of North and South America. And unfortunately, they're the ones that usually get to make this decision. But again, it hasn't stopped us before. We did it. We broke up the aluminum companies, the oil companies, AT&T. And I think we're long overdue to do the same thing here. If you look at Google, though, if you broke up Google, where's the value outside YouTube and, and the Google search engine? Well, even though that, I think that'd be a great place to start. Uh, and I think within 30 days of the breakup, Google launches a, a video platform and YouTube launches a search engine. And overnight, we have two viable competitors instead of one in each category. Because right now, they're coordinating and cooperating. And as a result, YouTube really doesn't have that much incentive to figure out a way not to radicalize our youth. But if one, if there were two of them, I think one of them would raise their hand and go, we're going to make the requisite investment to have a stronger value proposition to stakeholders, to regulators, and to our customers. I also think there's probably, um, there's probably an opportunity to decouple the back end. They have a, with the acquisition of DoubleClick, they have a huge back end infrastructure around serving ads and online ads. You could, I mean, there's all kinds of things. You could break up Android, but I think Google, a spin of YouTube would probably be a good place to start. And my prediction is that a year post the spin, the two companies are worth more in aggregate than the company's worth now. Does Android have any value if you broke Google up? I mean, isn't the essence of Android that it has value in a united Google when all the, the dots are connected? But with that, when, those docs, when those dots are unconnected or disconnected, uh, products like Android lose value. I'm not necessarily saying that's an argument against breaking the company up. I just think from Google's point of view, it would be a catastrophe. So I think in the short run, you might be right. Um, that, But think about Android or the operating system for 2 billion phones. Uh, you know, that's a pretty valuable company. Android, Android and Co. is an independent company. A lot of people would want to own that stock. Mm. So even if it doesn't have... The, and it, it, there's nothing to say they couldn't still continue to cooperate with uh, a company called Alphabet or Google and share data if they found that it was good for both of them. When eBay spun PayPal, PayPal had a long-term relationship with eBay to be their sole payment platform. And now PayPal is worth several fold what the parent company eBay is worth. So yeah, in the short term, they don't get to cooperate, they don't get to coordinate, but at the same time, you might find a bunch of other startups see an opportunity to compete in operating systems for phone or to compete in digital marketing. Because right now, two-thirds of all digital marketing globally runs through two entities. And the rents they can charge to not only their advertisers, but the rents they can charge society by not making the requisite investments to ensure that self-cutting and self-harm and teen suicide doesn't skyrocket uh, because of the link between social media 
and teen depression, there's really no reason for monopolies to invest in these things when there's nothing that can be done to them because there's no competition. So there's regulation, but I would argue that the answer is competition and that these companies, while in the short term it might hurt them, I think in the in the long run they emerge from this stronger and we find that there's a lot of innovation that takes place from competition and, and uh, when new new companies can kind of fill in some of the white space that's created by breaking these guys apart. If Facebook was broken up, do you think that the, uh, the, 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 social, the social network could survive with a, as, a, as a standalone business without Instagram and its other products? Oh, yeah. Facebook, Facebook's, I mean, Facebook's not growing as fast as the others, but Facebook, I think, has. I mean, combined, they, they have 2.7 billion people on their various platforms, but Facebook is still the largest social network in the world, still an incredible engine. And in addition, Instagram as an independent company, it might be worth as much as Facebook right now. It's growing fast. It's doing really well. It hasn't been weaponized by bad actors. It's got kind of a cleaner feel to it. WhatsApp is arguably the largest telco company in the world right now. But it doesn't have a business model, WhatsApp. And it, if, if it got broken up, it would have to have a business model as a standalone company. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Uh, I think WhatsApp with you know having the being kind of the largest service provider, if you will, for telecommunications in the world right now, I don't think they're going to have a, a tough time finding a business model. You know, even if it's charging pennies on the dollar or serving ads, I, I think they'll figure it out or or forward integrating into a device. Uh, but I don't. Yeah, the notion that I mean, that's one thing these companies can do is they can offer certain components of their offering for free and then no one else can compete so no one can offer a telco app because right now whatsapp is free because it's subsidized by other other divisions of facebook um so i i actually think the notion that they would have to figure out a way to compete or if you will price fairly or or justify their existence uh, i think that would be good for the economy and spawn a lot of innovation you, you, you've spoken and written a lot about Amazon as the biggest of the big four in many ways, and perhaps the most threatening of, the, of these companies in the long run. I assume if you broke Amazon up, you would split it into an e-commerce company and a web services company. I think that's right. My prediction is by 2025 that AWS is the most valuable company in the world. I think AWS spun... Right now, there's no pure play way for investors to play the cloud. If you want to play Google Cloud, you got to crawl over a search engine. Azure, Microsoft's offering, you got to crawl over Microsoft Office. Investors love pure plays because CEOs love diversified companies because it smooths out their earnings. But investors don't need CEOs to diversify for them. So they love pure play offerings. And I think AWS on its own, being the number one in the fastest growing, most profitable sector of technology, the cloud would in three to five years be the most valuable company in the world. So AWS as, as a spin, I think helps shareholders uh, as better for the economy. I also think Amazon fulfillment, the back end offering could be a viable distinct competitor to FedEx and UPS. And again, wouldn't give them sort of this unassailable advantage such that no e-commerce company can really make a dent in Amazon. Also, I think you'd see a lot of e-commerce companies start to get funding because right now, no VC wants to fund any company that competes with Amazon. If you look at sectors and seed funding, the sectors that get that have had the biggest drop-off in seed funding are the sectors that compete with one of these four behemoths. So, we're you know people like to these companies like to foment the false notion we're living in an era of innovation. And if you read the Wall Street Journal and the FT and CNBC, they 
propagate that false narrative. The reality is there were more jobs being or more new businesses being formed 40 years ago than there are now. There were twice as many companies being formed in the Carter administration than there are now because it is very difficult to start a company in the fastest growing parts of our economy because they're, they're, they're pretty much dominated by one or two companies in each of those sectors. When it comes to Apple, the the the, the final of the, of the big four, would you split that into a a software and a hardware company, a um, a device company, and an entertainment company? I think that's harder to do, and uh, because I think elegant antitrust not only creates more competition, but it in the medium and long term benefits the shareholders of the uh, of the original company. And I think it would be difficult to break Apple up. Because the the kind of the key asset there. So if you break up YouTube and Google, they're both great brands. You break up Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. They're both all three of them are great brands and do fine. If you break up Apple, the difficult part is who gets the decision over or the domain over the, one of the key assets, which is the brand. So I don't see an elegant way to to if you will extract those two or divide those two. I think in the case of Apple, it's regulation of the App Store because. Um, a company like Spotify, a European company, which in my view has a vastly superior offering, has now been bested or is growing more slowly than Apple Music because Apple is pre-installed on a billion devices. And Apple, when you search for music in the App Store five years ago, the number one return was Spotify. Now Spotify isn't even in the top five. It's all Apple Music apps. So Apple is obviously favoring on their platform their own product, even though it's an inferior product. So I think in some, I, don't, I, I, I agree with a lot of people who think that it would be wrong to break up Apple. I think that's probably right. But I think in that instance, it's probably regulation specifically of the App Store. What is your kind of historical take on the AI revolution? Is it something profoundly new? Is it really just more of the same? You know, I don't, I, I really don't have a lot of domain expertise around AI. AI feels to me, as someone who watches technology and trends, AI feels like it's in a pretty serious hype cycle right now, along with virtual reality, Internet of Things, 3D printing. Um, you know, AI to me seems to take processing power to the next level. And, you know, in terms of my life, AI, the way AI, impacts my life is that if I'm watching House of Cards season three, episode four, Netflix figures out that I might like season three, episode five and begins playing it without me actually clicking on it. But I, I don't, I don't, I wonder if sort of, you know, we'll see. It's being pitted as a nationalist argument that China with its AI weaponized warriors is coming for a US AI firm. So I agree it's an exciting field, but I wonder if there's a, if it's in, a bit of a hype cycle right now where the the dream and the fears of AI may not pay off as, or come, become, be realized as soon as people think. Are the current incumbents well set up, uh, the, the, the big four, are they well set up to dominate AI? Or will we have a Google or a Microsoft um, or an Apple of AI, a company that redefines the category? I don't know. I think, the, I think right now you'd have to say these companies are exceptionally well positioned as are uh, some Chinese companies, as um, there appears to be a lot of funding and focused uh, focus investment in China. But I, if you were to pick these companies right now, soak up the majority of the you know the best human capital in the world. This Amazon is the number one recruit out of my class. It used to be Goldman. It used to be American Express. Now it's Amazon. And the best and brightest used to go to work 
in Israel, they used to go into the military. In Britain, they used to go to work in the government. And in the U.S., they used to go to work in big companies. Now, for the most part, and occasionally they go to work for NASA. Now, all of those people, whether it's the head of you know Nick Clegg in the U.K. or uh, when people come out of the army or defense systems in Israel, they all go to work for tech companies uh, because technology sort of transitioned from this promise of the betterment of humanity that was largely the domain of government to a really a shareholder driven or economically driven um, proposition. And now it's mostly about the finest universities in the world and the best human talent no longer go to work trying to figure out how to, you know, how to save the world, if you will. They've gone to work trying to figure out how to sell more Nissan ads. Scott, you make a lot of sense, at least in my mind, on the breaking up of these big companies. Why aren't you in charge? <laughs> you have a, a, a big platform. Why are these morons in, in, in Washington, D.C. still running the show or, or perhaps more accurately not running the show? What's the problem? here? You know, I've, I've actually spent more time in Washington in the last six months than I've spent, you know, in the previous 20 years. And I've, I have found, and maybe it's because I don't know it that well, but I found the people in Washington to be pretty thoughtful and trying to address the problem. I find some of the work that our European regulators are doing in Brussels is actually quite thoughtful. You know, government's not known for moving crisply. But I do think over the, I think the, you know, the arc is slow, but it bends towards justice. I think in government, I do think they are starting to see the light, if you will, around this. And in the U.S., what we're seeing is similar to tobacco, when states don't see their federal government moving as quickly as they'd like, that void gets filled by states. So we have forty-eight attorney generals, uh, forty-eight attorney generals, uh, with the exception of California and Puerto Rico, who've all signed on to. Um, investigate antitrust concerns around Google and Facebook. So, look, it's happening. We're headed in the right direction. It's just maybe not heading as quickly as possible. And I love, and I think you can relate to this, I love being an outsider. It frees you up to speak your mind. Um, being an academic is wonderful, getting to teach. So, you know, I'm in a great seat right now. And it's easier, quite frankly, it's much easier to comment on things than it is to actually affect change. So I, I don't envy what, what our elected officials are facing every day. Do you think if Elizabeth Warren is elected, certainly it looks as if she's now the favorite to win the Democratic nomination, that she will pursue a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, breaking up these big companies? I do, but I think it's going to happen regardless. You know, there might be certain individuals who move faster than others. And she, to her credit, has been the most thoughtful and most detailed and has obviously done the most homework. But this is a bipartisan issue. I wrote an article on the topic in Esquire magazine, and the first two calls I received after the article was published were from legislative aides in Elizabeth Warren's office and also from Ted Cruz's office, who's a very conservative senator. So the breakup of big tech or concerns around the dangers of big tech appears to be a rare bipartisan issue here in the U.S., now there's some big obstacles. You know, these Amazon has 88 full-time lobbyists in D.C. Uh, I think they're outgunned. It does. There's so many distractions right now with our current administration that instead of focusing on various dumpster or forest fires, we're focused on different mushroom clouds of our own making by this administration. So we're kind of distracted from some key problems. But I think that there's reasons to be optimistic. I think Europe is making strides and looking at these problems. I think the states in the United States are looking at these problems. And I think whoever gets elected in 2020 maybe with the exception of Trump. I don't think he, I don't think he understands these issues, nor, nor has shown really any competence to address them. Uh, but if any, I think any Democrat that's elected 
uh, or maybe possibly now any other Republican that's elected, is going to um, move against this issue. Why isn't Silicon Valley more aggressively supportive of your position? After all, for most venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, it's in their interest to break these companies up and create a more com a competitive digital environment. Well, a lot of them work for these companies. A lot of them are in this ecosystem that benefits. I mean, the, the, the Bay Area has wildly been, there's a reason the Bay Area prices are higher than they've ever been. This has been, if you think about these four companies, you know, one way to look at them is the most efficient vessels for the transfer of wealth from the rest of the world to the U.S. and then from the middle of the U.S. to the coasts. So I'm not sure the Bay Area is in a hurry to turn on the lights at this cocaine-fueled party that's gone till 6 a.m. and just see how ugly things are. So there's, I, they have a vested interest in keeping things exactly as they are. And I think some of them that work for smaller companies would like to see a more robust, diversified ecosystem. But it's very difficult for them to be, you know, to go after or attack the the kind of the big four, or the big five. A lot of them work for them. A lot of them know people who work for them. And a lot of them have worked for companies that are dependent upon maintaining a good relationship for them. And a lot of them have benefited wildly from these firms. So uh, you're not going to see this. It's not going to be led. These companies, you know, when it's raining money, it blurs your vision. Um, tobacco companies never made the connection between tobacco and cancer. Gun manufacturers will never make the connection between the sale of assault weapons and the murder of children. And I just don't think you're going to see the larger or the, you know, the broader Bay Area based tech, uh, tech ecosystem see the connection between the unfettered march of technology. And what I believe is a, unfortunately a key step to tyranny. And that is when government becomes co-opted by private power instead of being a countervailing force to it. And it feels as if we're getting dangerously close to that, to that uh, point. Say something more about that. Well, typically, and I'm, I'm, I mean, this is really dark, but as a species, we're really good at genocide. And I'm kind of, you're thinking a lot about this because I was just at the genocide memorial in, in Kigali in Rwanda. And typically what happens is you get control, the, a key step in genocide, which we as a species tend to do every 10 or 20 years. We focus on our greatest hits in Europe in the mid 20th century, but we seem to come up with the same idea every 10 or 20 years somewhere around the world. And one of the key steps is control of the media and the notion that we're letting one company control the population or control the content that the Southern Hemisphere of the population, the Southern Hemisphere plus India controlled by a 30-something-year-old college dropout uh, that cannot be kicked out of office and will likely be around for 70 years. Regardless of that person's intentions, one of the keys to a healthy society is checks and balances. And with these companies, we have sort of foregone all checks and balances. So I, I believe the concentration of power and the concentration of a company that decides the messaging or the intentions, whether it's Facebook or Google, of these enormous populations is not only economically um, frightening, but it's it's incredibly concerning for I think for the health and well being of our society. So, so these issues are from a, a species point of view existential. I think it's a big threat. I think that, that, like I said, if you look at what's happened, what happened in Germany, what what happened in Rwanda, typically uh, an entity gets control of the media, gets control of the money, and then gets control of the military. And these, if you were to argue, you know, there is a direct correlation between the rise 
of these platforms and things ranging from white nationalism to the demonization of immigrants to teen depression. And so the notion that even if they have good intentions, the notion that any one company, if it were to be co-opted, weaponized, or just come off the tracks, that we don't have countervailing forces in the form of competitors or a government that understands these understands these platforms and is willing to push back on them, it puts us in a very dangerous place that history has shown does not does not end well. Do you think that a new wave of entrepreneurs would be more responsible to the consequences of their products and technologies on society? Clearly, this first generation wasn't. No, I don't think so. I think we always hope and project on this next generation and younger people that they're more mindful and more soulful. For the most part, in a capitalist society, the rewards and accoutrements of being economically successful are so dramatic that you will make incremental rationalizations to do things that might be harmful. I don't think Sheryl Sandberg is a bad person. I think she is generally concerned with the welfare of women. But when she's offered a couple billion dollars uh, to, if you will, ignore um, some of the red flags in her business division, and uh, those that that denial results in a level of negligence that, uh, quite frankly, in my opinion, there's there's a lot of evidence to show we have an illegitimate president based on the fact that her platform was weaponized and suppressed the vote in key swing districts. We now have a president who is appointed in the U.S. Supreme Court justices that is slowly but surely eroding the rights of women. So we have an inspiring, charismatic woman who's been paid a couple billion dollars to ignore red flags, which has resulted in a level of gross negligence that may overturn a woman's access to, say, family planning. And I think it's not because she's a bad person. I think it's because we failed. I think we have failed to elect the leaders that employ the checks and balances and, and scrutiny we've applied to every other company and business previously. So this could end up accidentally and unwittingly in some very bad places than it already has. So we really need to get our internet back. Scott. That's right. That's Let's yours. take it back. You and I are taking it back. <laughs> <laughs>